All right, well, can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11? As most of you already know, we are working our way through Matthew's Gospel on Sunday morning. And we've come to chapter 11. That really becomes a new section, actually, in Matthew's Gospel. So far, we have seen John the Baptist. He's gone to the people of Israel and he has preached this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then, of course, the Lord Jesus came to the nation of Israel with that same message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then at the beginning of chapter 10, we saw Jesus himself send out his 12 disciples to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet in chapter 11, we see that the people rejected the message. Why? I mean, didn't these people want the kingdom? Didn't they want to be a part of God's kingdom? Well, certainly. They wanted the kingdom... The problem is they didn't want to repent and receive the king to reign over their lives. It's no different today, is it? I mean, for those folks that believe in heaven, everyone wants to go there someday when they die. I mean, that's a given. The problem is they don't want to repent and change the way they're living today by receiving Jesus as their king to rule over their lives. But what people fail to understand, the more a person hears the truth of God, and I'm thinking primarily of the gospel, but of course, all the scriptures. The more people hear the truth of God, the more they are held responsible and accountable by God to live that out in their lives. It says the old axiom goes, with knowledge comes responsibility. And that's exactly what we're going to see Jesus teaching here in verses 20 to 24. So let's read them together. Where it says that he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. He mentions Bethsaida and Capernaum. These were Jewish towns on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin was a, a small village nestled in the hills about two and a half miles north of Capernaum. And the Lord compared these three Jewish towns with three Gentile cities, very wicked Gentile cities, Tyre, Sidon, and then, of course, Sodom. Tyre and Sidon were located about 35 and 60 miles, respectively, north of the Sea of Galilee. And the Gentiles in those cities were descendants of the ancient Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were renowned as a mighty seafaring people that colonized many of the islands and such in the uh, Mediterranean Sea, but even beyond that, uh, many historians believe. So uh, they were uh, a seafaring people, but both Tyre and Sidon were uh, seaport towns. And you know how that goes with sailors and things. If anybody's a sailor, I apologize. I'm not saying you personally, but, you know, typically sailors uh, and all. And, of course, they were merchant towns as well. So you had a lot of merchants coming through, caravans and so on. Um, but these two seaport towns were noted for their immorality and godlessness, even, you know, uh, by pagan standards. 
And they were really bad, okay? So when Jesus compared these two towns to Bethsaida and Chorazin, you're a Jew, you're thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, those are two of the worst cities in the entire world. You're comparing them to our towns? Yeah, he was. Jesus said in verses 21 and 2, he said, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And of course, the Lord is talking about the great white throne judgment. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15 talk about this judgment. This is where all unbelievers are resurrected and stand before the Lord Jesus Christ to be judged. Everybody who has ever lived, who has rejected Jesus as Messiah and Lord and so on, when they die, they go into a place called Hades, uh, which is a holding tank that's in the center of the earth, and eventually they are resurrected to stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment, and there they will be sentenced by Jesus to eternal punishment. But Jesus said at that judgment, the unbelieving Gentiles of Tyre and Sidon are going to fare better than the unbelieving Jews of Chorazin and Bethsaida. But then the Lord singled out Capernaum for a kind of a dubious special mention. Capernaum was a city, he said it was even guiltier than Chorazin and Bethsaida. He said, and you Capernaum who are exalted to heaven. First of all, Capernaum, located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, was a very wealthy city. As we have already said, it was the economic engine of the entire region. Very wealthy, prosperous city financially. But not only that, when Jesus conducted his ministry up in the Galilee, which was most of the time, guys, most of the time he ministered was up in the Galilee region. And when he was up there, Capernaum became his hometown. It became his, his headquarters. He lived there. And from there, he would launch out to various places to minister and so on. So Capernaum not only was a very wealthy city financially, but a very wealthy city spiritually, you might say, as well. I mean, the Lord Jesus Christ performed more miracles and preached more sermons in and around Capernaum than in any other place in his entire ministry. It was there that he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead and healed the nobleman's son. It was in Capernaum that he healed a demoniac, healed Peter's mother-in-law. He also healed a woman who had been hemorrhaging uh, for 12 years. He healed two blind men there. Uh, he healed the centurion's servant who was uh, paralyzed and near death. He also uh, cast a demon out of a mute demoniac, uh, healing the man. And he uh, healed that young guy that his friends lowered down you know, from the roof. Remember, Jesus was in the house and it was so crowded they couldn't get their friend in who was paralyzed and severely suffering with some kind of a, a malady. And so they wanted to bring him to Jesus, but they couldn't get in. Everyone was house was packed. So they went up to the roof, dismantled the roof tiles, and lowered him down on a stretcher into the midst of where Jesus was teaching. And, of course, the Lord healed him. All of this was done in and around Capernaum. And yet, for all of these miracles, most of the citizens no doubt in part due to their great wealth, remained indifferent and unmoved by the ministry of Jesus. Jesus said, you are exalted to heaven. What does that mean? You have been put in a favored position. I mean, how many cities in the world have ever had Jesus preach in their, you know, in their city limits 
uh, like Jerusalem, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, only a handful, right? But Capernaum especially so because Jesus lived there. He interacted with people there on a regular basis. He did more miracles, preached more messages there in Capernaum than anywhere else. They were exalted to heaven. They were lifted up by God to a place of prominence and opportunity that few people have ever known, kind of like America. How we have been lifted up by God to be a light to the world, I'm convinced. We have been made a favored nation, blessed beyond any other nation that has ever existed beside uh, Israel. And yet instead of using the opportunity that God gave them in embracing Messiah and his message, instead they were indifferent. They rejected it. And so instead of being one of the most blessed cities in history, Jesus would go on to say they had become one of the most cursed. We read in verse 23, in New Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which are done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it will it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Of course, Sodom was a, a city located that used to be located a hundred miles to the south of the Sea of Galilee, on the southern shores of the Dead Sea. And you can read about uh, that city in Genesis. And we know from Genesis that God destroyed Sodom, Gomorrah, and some other cities in that region for their incredible immorality, militant homosexuality, other perversions. That is why God eventually judged them, and today they are no more. But in this passage, Jesus said that the judgment that awaited the three Jewish cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum would be even more severe. Why? Well, because, as Jesus said, if the same miracles, and we talk about miracles, we're also talking about the preaching that went along with them. Jesus never came into town, worked a bunch of miracles, and left without preaching. That was the whole point, to preach the message and have the miracles confirm that he was, in fact, Messiah. So this, the mighty works that Jesus did, accompanied with the incredible message of the gospel, was preached in these cities, and because they had been privileged to hear Jesus teach and to see the miracles when these other pagan cities had not had the same benefits. Therefore, the three Jewish towns are going to be judged more severely than those in these pagan cities, even though they were probably more corrupt morally and so on. Yet they would bear a lesser penalty than those that had heard the truth and had rejected it. The question I was wrestling with as I was preparing this message was, why after all the miracles that Jesus did in his public ministry in these, this area, especially in these three towns, all the miracles that had been done, all the truth that had been given, why was it that these people, Jewish people now, these were the people of God, why was it that after all these things their hearts remained hardened and impenitent when Jesus said pagans, if they had the same opportunity, would have repented long ago? These were the people of God. Why were they so hard-hearted? Let me tell you what I think. It was because they were the people of God, they thought they had no need to repent of anything they were in. As we have said before many times, the rabbis actually taught, if a Jewish man was circumcised, he was automatically saved. Because he had the blood of Abraham coursing through his veins, and the outward mark of circumcision in his body, and therefore his heritage coupled with his ritual equaled salvation in their mind. 
Well, you know, Jesus said that that isn't true. And I'll tell you what, we see it today in our culture. We see a lot of people who think, because I'm an American, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not Jewish, I'm an American, I'm a Christian, right? And because I've been water baptized, or have had some other ritual, therefore, I'm in. And Jesus would say to them, as he said to the Jewish people back then, don't assume, because you're born in a certain place of a certain lineage, and have gone through certain rituals that that's going to save you. It will not. It will not. Religion can make you feel, give you a false sense of security, the illusion that you're right with God when you're really not. Religion can't save anybody. It takes a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that comes by faith. So I believe that that was a big part of why these Jewish towns remained impenitent. I think that they just felt... They were already right with God. And don't tell me I need to repent. It's like a lot of Americans who go to church and were confirmed, baptized, homogenized, whatever they were. You try to tell them about Jesus. Don't, don't tell them. I've been going to church longer than you've been alive. Okay, well, you know, uh, that doesn't make you Christian. That doesn't make you Christian. You've got to renounce your sins. Get on your knees. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Look, one of the big things I see Jesus is, is, is pointing to here is that there's going to be degrees of punishment in hell just as there will be degrees of rewards in heaven. There are going to be degrees of punishment in hell. And the degree of the punishment in hell that a person endures will be determined in part by how much truth that person was given but rejected. Let me show you what I mean. Turn to Luke chapter 12. In Luke 12, starting in verse 47, we read, And the servant, who knew his master's will, and did not prepare himself to do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, or lashes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. And of course, Jesus Christ is not really talking about earthly punishments. Here it transcends that, and he's talking about ultimate uh, punishment in hell. He is saying, look, those people that did not have the word of God, those people that didn't have all the truth that others have been privileged to have, when they die, and of course, people get into the whole thing, well, you know, what about the poor native in Africa that's never heard the gospel? And I always like to say, look, it's very noble that you're so concerned about the poor native in Africa. I know one thing. God will deal with that person absolutely fairly. And I'm convinced if anyone, no matter where they are, if they're faithful to the light that they have, and the creation declares the glory of God, the heavens show forth his handiwork, if you look up into the night sky and see the creation, look around, and see the creation all around you, and you say, you know what, this could not have happened by accident. There had to be a God who made it. And I would like to know that God. I don't know who he is. I don't know how to contact him. But I would like to know him in a deeper way. I'm convinced, folks, if God has to send an angel from heaven to your village, you will get the information you need to be saved. God will never let anyone go to hell 
who wants to know the truth. And in fact, in Revelation, I think it was 14, before Jesus, before the Lord pours out his final judgments on this world, he does send an angel flying through the heavens declaring the everlasting gospel so that nobody can say, I didn't hear. And if God's going to do it then, why can't he do it now? And I've heard very interesting testimonies from missionaries who finally did reach a remote people group and found out that the Lord had already gone before him with an angel and he, they had heard the gospel and many were saved. They said, so that's his name, Jesus. We didn't know what his name was. We just knew the Son of God was sent to die for our sins. You know, it's noble that people want to worry about the native in Africa. Here's what I tell them, all right? Uh, you know what? God will deal with that person fairly. But look, you have heard about Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with it? Because the Bible says that, look, those people that didn't have all the information that some have, they're going to be judged less severely than those who sat under the teachings of God's truth and yet still rejected it. And if this was true for cities like Karaz and Bethsaida and Capernaum, how much more will it be true for Chicago, Boston, Miami, New York, etc.? Places where, you know, the Bible is... You can have as many Bibles as you want where the gospel is broadcast 24-7. There's absolutely no excuse for not knowing and believing in Jesus Christ. So what's the problem? All right? what's the pro if the truth sets us free, and we have access to so much truth here in America, God's truth I'm talking about, why aren't people getting saved in droves? Well, certainly much of it has to do with the fact that as Jesus said in John 3, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. In other words, there are people who love the darkness. They love to live rebellious and moral lives and they really don't want to change. We understand that. But there's a couple of other reasons, I think, why people in America pr primarily are not really embracing God's truth because it's so powerful. It has transformed so many lives. What is the, what's holding the rest up? Okay, And I think a couple of main reasons for this, let me tell you right now. Ignorance and indifference. Ignorance and indifference. Kind of reminds me of the reporter who had the conviction that the greatest threats facing our nation today was ignorance and indifference. So he decided to go out onto the streets and interview people to find out if they felt the same way. So you know how that works. He goes out into the you know, man on the street interviews kind of thing. He goes out and finds a guy and puts the microphone you know, to his face and says, Sir, uh, what do you think is the greatest threat facing the American people today? The guy said, I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> Ignorance and indifference, I think, are two of the greatest threats facing America today. Certainly in the political realm, I mean, we see uh, political ignorance and indifference that are really helping to kill our nation. I mean, you know, as Christians, we, we tend to be more engaged than most people. We tend to uh, keep up on uh, who's running for office and uh, those people who are Christians and hold values, uh, the values that we hold and so on, because we want to be good citizens. We want to cast our vote for godly men and women and so on. But it's always amazed me whenever I'm watching a show where they send some guy out onto the streets to interview people once again, you know, and they will ask them some of the most basic questions. I'm not talking about uh, difficult political questions. Who's the vice president? Uh, who's the speaker of the house? How many branches of government can, do we have? Can you name them? And these people are completely clueless. 
I mean, you show a picture of Justin Bieber to them, they know exactly who he is. You show somebody from, you know, Jer- what is it, Jersey Shores or whatever, they can name all the cast members. Show a picture of Joe Biden, nobody knows who he is. That might not be a bad thing now. But, so that kind of thing is killing our nation. I think our founding fathers did say at one point that an ignorant electorate would be one of the greatest threats to our nation, and we see it today. But I think an even greater threat than that ignorance and indifference is the ignorance and indifference towards the truth of God, especially when it comes to the signs that are pointing to the return of Jesus Christ, which will be preceded by God's judgment. We are getting very close to the return of Christ to the planet Earth. The signs are all there. But we see, first of all, people are ignorant. Why don't you turn to Matthew 16 once? Now, we will study this in more detail when we get there, but let me just read to you verses 2 and 3, where Jesus answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning... It will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Now that that's a little proverb that's been around for I guess a long time. Remember, the, the old you probably learned it when you were younger. You know, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Well, that, Jesus knew about that little thing back in his day, all right. But Jesus is using it and saying to the people of his generation, the leadership primarily was in view here. He said, you know, you can look at the sky in the evening and predict the weather for the next day. Or you can look at the sky in the morning and know what kind of day it's going to be. You can look at the signs in the sky and you can predict the future. But you cannot, you're, you're ignorant to the fact that there are signs everywhere that predicted my first coming and you are completely blinded to it. Do you realize that there are over 330 prophecies of Jesus' first coming in the scriptures? 333. And yet when he came the first time, most people were absolutely clueless. They were ignorant. His coming caught them off guard. Do you realize that there are over 500 prophecies concerning a second coming? Are we any more enlightened than they are? We're just as clueless as a nation. I'm talking about the church. Do you know how many people in the church don't even believe he's coming back? or that he rose from the dead for that matter, or wasn't virgin born. I mean, there's some very shocking statistics that have been, you know, surveys taken among clergy. Clergy who don't believe the basics anymore. So people were ignorant in Jesus' day. They're ignorant today. Turn to one more scripture on this. Luke 19. In Luke 19, Luke records Palm Sunday. The day that Jesus rode on a donkey up the Mount of Olives. If you've ever been to Israel, or if you just look at a map or a... uh, a picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, you'll realize the Mount of Olives is elevated above the city of Jerusalem. So if you come to the Mount of Olives, you're looking across the Kidron Valley, you're looking down slightly at the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus comes up to the top of the Mount of Olives and he sees Jerusalem laid out before him and he begins to weep. He said in verse 42, he said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you, 
and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Well, first of all, this destruction happened in 70 AD when the Romans surrounded the city of Jerusalem and they sacked it and destroyed it. They set the temple on fire and the fire melted the gold in the ceiling and it ran down between the cracks of the stones that were used to build the temple. So to get the gold, they dismantled the temple stone by stone, pushing the stones off down the Theropian Valley, which they still are there to this day. But they completely leveled the city and the temple. What you see in Israel today, the Temple Mount, is there anything left on there from the old temple? It's all gone. Why did this happen? Why, why did Jesus say this was coming? Because you did not know your day. You did not know the time of your visitation. He's talking about prophecy. He was holding them accountable for not knowing, being ignorant to the clear prophecies God had given in his word. The prophecy in mind, no doubt, was out of Daniel 9, where God sent Gabriel to Daniel, who was in Babylon at this time, and gave to him one of the greatest prophecies in the entire word of God, where, where Gabriel said to Daniel, from the time the commandment goes forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, there's going to be, and I'm going to paraphrase, now I'm going to break it down, he said 483 years, but that's 173,000 880 days before Messiah will ride to Jerusalem. The commandment went forth from Artaxerxes to Nehemiah on March 14, 445 B.C. That was the starting point. If you add 173,880 days to that starting point, it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday. The day that was prophesied, the day that if they had received him as their king, he would have brought the peace of the kingdom to Israel. If you would only have known this day which would have made for your peace. But now these things are hidden from your eyes. See, if you don't want truth, you don't deserve truth. If you're going to reject the clear teachings of Scripture, at one point God will close your eyes so that you can't understand the clear teachings of Scripture. We see this become a reality in chapter 13 as we're going to see when we get there. No longer clear, open teaching. He now goes cryptic. He begins to veil the truth with parables. His disciples said to him, Lord, why do you speak to the people in parables? Because they don't want, they see, but they don't really want to understand. They hear, but they don't really, they can't comprehend because their hearts are hardened. Therefore, if God gives you truth and you reject the truth, he removes from you the ability to understand the truth. And therefore, all that is left is judgment, which is what happened in Israel's day. And it's going to happen to America if we don't get on our knees and repent. But this was nothing more, folks, than lazy, willful ignorance. It wasn't that God had not revealed the truth. The people back then and people today are just too lazy to take the time to open the Scriptures, to study what God has actually said, and then pray about living according to what He has said. It's lazy ignorance fueled by, listen, indifference. It's one thing to be ignorant... And say, you know what, I, I really don't know the Bible as well as this person or that person. I, I want to know it better. So you start reading it, studying, going to Bible studies. You can, you can enlighten yourself. You can learn. You don't have to be ignorant. But if it's fueled by indifference, you're done. You're done. Let me uh, have you turn to Luke chapter 14. We'll look at the indifference that 
Jesus faced in his day and that we even face today. But in Luke 14, starting in verse 16, we read, Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. This is called the wedding parable. The great supper was a wedding feast. Okay? And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. Keep that in mind. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, Well, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways, hedges, and byways, compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. What is this all about? Well, it's really about the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's about the wedding feast. Okay, Who were those who were originally invited? It was Israel. And primarily the leadership of Israel. But they rejected the invitation. So then when the nation rejected their Messiah, Jesus began to turn to individual Jews. We'll see that next week. And he began to preach to individuals now to receive the king. Because you can't be a member of the kingdom if you don't receive the king to reign over your life. And of course, many Jews did respond. And so they were brought in. But there was still room for others. And so the master said, go out and now call the Gentiles. Because there's plenty of room in my kingdom for Jews and Gentiles. And that invitation is still going on today, by the way. The Lord is saying, look, salvation was of the Jews, but it was not limited to the Jews. I mean, it was through the Jewish people that Messiah came, but as God said to Abraham, way back in Genesis 12, in Messiah, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It wouldn't be just Israel. Jesus Christ came to save all mankind. And in heaven, there's going to be people from every family, tribe, kindred, and tongue rejoicing in heaven because they received the message of the truth. The problem is today so many people are preoccupied. See, these people, the excuses they gave, they were not involved in evil practices. They were just going about their lives, weren't they? They were buying and selling and so on. The excuses were not evil things they were involved in. They were letting, listen to me, the mundane things come before the most important things, which is spiritual things. It really doesn't matter when it's all said and done what kind of business you have, how prosperous you were, what kind of house you lived in, how nice a car you drove. When it's all said and done, the only thing that's going to matter is that you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if you haven't, and you let those things keep you from him, that is a great tragedy. Jesus warned that ignorance and indifference has doomed people in the past to judgment and will doom them in the future as well. Turn to Luke 17 as we kind of wrap this up. And let's start at verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so we're going back quite a bit, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Again, 
There's nothing wrong with uh, eating and drinking, marrying wives and being given in marriage. That's not sinful activities. But what it was is business as usual. People were so busy just going through life. They didn't want to hear Noah preach. The Bible tells us that ark took 120 years to build. And the whole time Noah was building that thing in his driveway, he was preaching to his neighbors. The Bible calls him a preacher of righteousness. He preached for 120 years, repent because judgment is coming. Nobody listened. I'm sure it was the brunt of a lot of jokes, you know. But most of the time, most of it was people were just too preoccupied with their lives to really take the time to listen to this goofball. It's going to rain. Rain? What is rain? Nobody ever heard of rain, saw rain until the flood. You know, it's going to rain, okay? You better. You better repent. Rain's coming. Rain? What are you talking about? Just like today. Hey, guys, you better repent. The rapture's going to come. The rapture? What is that? Well, we're all going to be taken off the earth in a second, a twinkling of an eye, to meet the Lord. You get out of here. You, you nut job. I mean, you know, and people don't want to be bothered with this stuff. It sounds ridiculous to them. But that's the way it was. He says, likewise, verse 28, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted and built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. People are going to be caught off guard, not because God hasn't told them what's coming. It's willful ignorance fueled by indifference. So what are we supposed to do as children of God? as we bring it so close. Well, turn to Mark 13. I'll give you one more scripture. What are we supposed to do? In Mark 13, let's pick it up in verse 32. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray. For you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Waiting is not the same as watching. I can be waiting for someone's coming and still be caught off guard because I wasn't watching when they came. But if I'm vigilantly watching for their coming, they will not catch me by surprise. And the same is true, is true with Jesus' coming. How do we watch for his coming? Well, we need to know the signs he gave us to look for. That's the thing, okay? He said, you're not going to know. I'm not going to tell you the exact hour I'm coming. Well, the Lord, how can we watch? I'm going to give you the signs to look for that will precede my coming. If you see the signs begin to take place or be fulfilled, you know my coming is very near. And guys, I tell you what, all you have to do is look around and see the signs of Jesus' second coming are all around us. We see how the world is being prepared to come under a one-world government. Our nation right now is actively involved in giving up our sovereignty because there are people behind the scenes that are working to bring about a one world government. That's obvious. It's coming. 
Also, we see the religions of the world are coming together in a way we've never seen before. There's a great ecumenical push today, which are, is preparing the world for the one world church. We see in the Middle East, countries coming together. We see the nations aligning themselves together that Psalm 83 talks about. Nations around Israel coming together to battle her. Nations that have never been joined together in that coalition as spoken of in Psalm 83 were seen coming together. We see how that at any moment Ezekiel 38 and 9 could come to pass where God brings Russia, Iran, and a confederation of Muslim nations into the Middle East to attack Israel. All we're waiting is for the, the, the match to be lit. And what is the spark? I believe it could very well be Israel nuking Damascus, which Isaiah 17 verse 3 talks about. Because uh, Syria is right now going through a power struggle. They have chemical and biological weapons. And Israel has said if they use any one of those on us, we'll nuke Damascus. And of course, if you're in power in Syria and you're trying to bring your people together because they're against you and trying to throw you out of power, what brings Muslims together like nothing else? Their united hatred of Israel. Or the new regime could take over. And of course, they are radical Muslims and they will use whatever they can to try to destroy Israel. So if they come against Israel, Israel unleashes the Samson option, which they have called it, which will be to nuke Damascus. I think that will be the thing, the hook that will draw Russia and Iran into the Middle East, along with these other Muslim nations. Everything is ready for the Lord's catching his church up off the earth. Are we ready? You're only going to be ready if you're watching. Not just waiting, but watching. You're only going to be watching if you're no longer ignorant or indifferent, but you're studying to see what God has actually said. So, you're probably thinking to yourself right now, I'm glad I came to church today because I feel very uplifted and uh, edified. And I thank the pastor for that. Hey, look, guys. Um, you're sleeping one night in your bed, nice and cozy, comfortable. And you hear the uh, tornado siren go off. What's your initial reaction as it, you know, launches you off, off the bed into the ceiling where you grab on with your fingernails? I mean, it's pretty loud, isn't it? It's designed to awaken you, isn't it? What's your first reaction? Is it one of, oh, that's so edifying. Every time that thing goes off, I just feel so edified. <laughs> It's not designed to make you feel edified. It's designed to mobilize you through fear. It's, it's designed to alert you to something bad that's coming. You know what? The church is asleep in the light primarily because not many ministries anymore are sounding the alarm. No, it's not a pleasant message. No, you know, you folks have got a lot of issues you're going through right now. Financial, physical. The economy has caused a lot of hardship upon you and your families. I mean, I understand that. And so it's nice to come to church and hear a message that reassures me that God loves me, that he's on the throne, that he's got my life in his hands. You know, it's all going to be okay because he's going to work it all out eventually. And we have definitely given those messages. But sometimes we need to, be, we need to sound the alarm. That's what we're doing today. We're sounding the alarm because we don't want anyone caught off guard. When the rapture happens, 
We want to see you all taken with us. All right? We want to all go together. And when that trumpet sounds and that angel shouts and that and the Lord Jesus has come up here and we are instantly removed from this earth to be united with the Lord in the clouds and we receive our glorified bodies. You know what, guys? At that point, all tears will be wiped away from our eyes. There will be no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more death. But you know what? We have to be ready. So may God give us grace to know the days in which we're living, to not be ignorant or indifferent, but to study to show ourselves approved unto God where we can say, Lord, the signs are all there. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is light. We will never walk in darkness if we know your word. Lord, you have told us many things that were going to come to pass. We're seeing them right now, which are signaling the nearness of your return. There is no excuse for ignorance. And Lord, Lord, help us if we're indifferent. Father, we pray that you would awaken your church. We pray, Lord, that you would awaken your church, fill us with your spirit, and use us for your glory in these last days. Lord, we all have loved ones that don't know you. Father, give us grace to pray and to witness to them. And Lord, touch their hearts and open their eyes that they might receive you, that we might all be taken together. And Lord, we just pray that you will be merciful to America. We deserve judgment, but Lord, we ask for mercy. We ask for revival, which is our only hope. Father, we thank you. Father, we ask all this in your precious name. Amen.